you looking to pursue excellence and take your success to the next level? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to Excellence Mindset with your host, Ryan James Miller. Hey, everybody. Before we get started on today's episode of the Excellence Mindset Podcast, I just wanted to share something really exciting with you that I've been working on called Foundations. And this is really building foundations in order to live a life of excellence. You know, for me, many of you know my story. Um, I have achieved uh, many levels of success. I found joy in many different areas of my life. And I've been setting and achieving goals for more than 20 years. And then tragedy struck. And among other things, I was drawn into this season of reflection, really a gut check to understand what I was pursuing, who I was becoming, and even who I was in that moment. It was such a fruitful opportunity for me going back to the beginning and relaying the foundation and getting clear on who I was. And through that season, 2019 has been the most joy-filled year of life I've ever lived. And now I want to share that with you. That's why I created this foundations program. It's a 90-day opportunity for you to do what I was able to do and hopefully to enable you to live the best year yet in 2020. So you can go to ryanjamesmiller.com slash foundations to check it out. With that, enjoy this next episode of the Excellence Mindset Podcast. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of the Excellence Mindset Podcast. I have with me today Jennifer Bashant. Uh, she is the CEO of Building Better Future. She's a trainer, she's a coach, she's a speaker. She's doing work in everything from the uh, educational system on up into the corporate world. And I'm super excited to talk about a lot uh, that has been on my mind lately and that I've been talking about lately with different people as it relates to uh, really capitalizing on uh, or, or working through people's strengths and, and trying to be a little bit more empathetic and compassionate maybe of people's weaknesses and the things that they're struggling with and understanding where they've been, where they've come from, and where we can really help them. Them to go. So with that, Jennifer, welcome so much to the Excellence Mindset Podcast. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let's dig right into something. I don't normally just hit this this hard, but uh, I saw something that you posted on LinkedIn the other day that I did want to, um, uh, to talk about a little bit. So uh, I know this is work that you're regularly doing uh, in, uh, it seems to be that you're regularly doing in the school space uh, around bringing self-awareness to children and helping them to better develop their strengths uh, versus maybe honing in on weaknesses and you know trying to make them less weak, if, if that's the right thing to say. So um, before we get into that specifically, like what is it that really drew you into the desire to want to help coach, educate, and support people in that area? And then even more specifically, why children? So um, as a social worker, I spent the first part of my career working in schools. And I've always been really interested in systems and kind of like the macro perspective of things. So in being involved in schools, one of the things I noticed right away was just the whole punitive nature of uh, the discipline systems and the way that we approach challenging behavior. And so as I started working more with kids um, who were really struggling, um, I 
was reading a lot of the research and um, trying out different things and really I came across um, collaborative problem solving and also the work of Dan Pink and he writes a lot about intrinsic motivation and so I started really getting into the strengths perspective and getting a, and having a lot of really positive effects. So um, what I try to do is help teachers and educators think differently about kids and about challenging behavior and really start with what are they good at? What are their gifts and talents? And how can we find ways to showcase those and then build from there? Rather than being problem focused and um, trying to fix problems, it's, mm -hmm. um, it's more of like a skill building, um, supportive kind of role. Sure. Okay, so uh, something that you said in there uh, stood out to me. So you said uh, motivating them intrinsically. Uh, so speak to that a little bit. So what, what does that look like when, when you're trying to explore that area? Because I have a whole lot of opinion there, but I'm going to withhold mm -hmm. myself until, <laughs> until I hear what you have to say. I have a feeling we might be on the same page. <laughs> but, um, but what I also noticed is that um, when teachers are trained um, in classroom management, they're really, um, it's pretty narrow in terms of um, how to motivate kids. And so it, it's typically a one size fits all approach, which is I'm going to offer points or tickets or prizes in order to motivate you to be compliant or to meet my expectations. And all kinds of problems happen when kids don't have the skill to meet that expectation. So then you see things like shutting down, you see um, if somebody loses points, if a kid loses points for negative behavior, the whole rest of their day could be ruined. So it's really um, a focus on the outside um, environment as opposed to um, my belief that all kids are born curious and intrinsically motivated and then when we kind of put them into the school system oftentimes we kill that mm -hmm. and so I try to help teachers think about how they can set up their classrooms and work with their students in a way that that intrinsic motivation develops um, because what we know is that it's 10 times more powerful than any ex extrinsic motivator that we can offer mm. yeah I, I, and as you know as you say that you know, very much on that same page. I mean, I tell people all the time, like, I hate motivation. Um, but really, when I say that, you know, I'm speaking to 99.9% .9 of how people speak about motivation, which is external. Uh, and, you know, so getting to the root of what people care about, what gets them out of bed, what excites them, you know, those are the things that matter the most. And, and so when I think about, like, your work and doing that for, for, for children and working with educators, I mean, it's, it's the same way that those educators operate, right? It's not necessarily like their fault as much as it's just, that's how they were brought up. That's probably how they operate their own life. Like everything is about these external factors that, are that they're attempting to use to drive them to be better, right? Exactly. Um, money, for example. Yep. Um, Dan Pink talks about how um, money can actually be a disincentive and no one would think that. But um, with kids, it's, it's really important that they're able to master what it is that we're asking them to do. So if you as an adult um, started a new hobby and you tried it a few times, you had some coaching, 
um, and you just really were not doing well with it, as an adult, you have the ability or the option to change course and say, you know what, that's not for me. I don't really like it. I'm not good at it. But kids can't do that in school. Um, they have to sit there and learn the math, even if they struggle with it. So, um, so what I do is help teachers think about how they can either break things down into smaller pieces so that that student can have success every step of the way or um, additional ways that they can support that student so they can be successful. Mm. Without that, the kid isn't going to be motivated. Who would be? Yeah. You know, if it's like failing over and over again. You're just going to shut down. Yep. Okay. So um, uh, <clears throat> I can hear pushback to some degree and, and some of it I actually would agree with. So there is this huge um, movement to meet people where they're at, to allow even, you know, kids, adults, whatever, like be yourself, you do you, um, whatever is good for you, like that, that's the way you should live your life. Um, it's gone all the way to the extent of everybody gets some sort of award or medal or trophy for participation. And so I feel like there needs to be some balance worked out where we are still creating some competitive nature, even in the classroom, where there is a standard held, where we are pushing kids. Uh, we're going to get on to talk about adults here in a little bit, but we are pushing them out of their comfort zone. So uh, how do you see that? And then how do you walk that line if you agree? And if not, then we can have a totally different conversation. <laughs> no, I absolutely agree. And I think the important point to make is that um, in doing this work, we're not lowering our expectations at all. Um, we're just breaking it down. And it, in academics, we call it scaffolding. So providing support so that that student can reach what we need them to do. Um, so it's really just a breaking down of the process so that they can be successful. We still have the same high expectations for behavior as everybody else. Um, it's just a little different way of getting there. And do you feel like this has the potential or are you seeing um, uh, outcomes that are uh, more positive, that are creating stronger human beings as a result of doing this stuff? Like, are you, are you seeing measurable results by taking this approach in a broad way? Absolutely. So in different ways, I've seen it individually with students. Um, some of the I'll talk about one girl who I worked with who um, I was coaching her teacher. And then um, the, the issue that was brought up was that she wasn't even attempting any of her math work because she was just shutting down. The minute she struggled a little bit, she would quit. And so um, we worked on making, supporting her in that, sort of breaking it down into tiny little steps. And by the end of the eight weeks that I had coached the teacher, um, she would come into our meetings with a huge smile on her face and she wants to report to me how far she got in her homework and we talk about the process that she would go through in order to work through that problem and you talked about self-awareness earlier uh, that plays a big part here also so it's um, helping her to understand well what is it that you're telling what are you saying to yourself when things get hard hmm. and having her really pay attention to those messages and then helping 
her to reprogram that thinking so that it's more supportive and positive. So, so I've seen positive results with students. I've also heard from teachers that, you know, this is really helping to turn things around with some of their really challenging kids. And then um, even larger scale than that, um, I would say that there are, there's more anxiety and depression in kids today than there ever has been. And so teachers and educators, administrators, they're all struggling. And so when I bring sort of a strengths-based trauma-informed approach to them, they're all hungry for something that will work. And so I've gotten a lot of positive feedback on that too. And uh, word of mouth, just kind of spreading my work because people don't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. So would you, would you define how you're using that word trauma? Trauma. Yeah. So trauma would be, um, an experience that, um, uh, goes beyond someone's ability to cope with it. Okay. So they don't have the resources or the resilience or the skills at that particular point in time to cope with it. So it's traumatic. Got it. Got it. Okay. So um, I've been reading, I'm just about done uh, with uh, a book uh, called The Coddling of the American Mind. And in it, uh, for some reason, I cannot remember the stinking name of the author. Um, I'll get there. I'll link it in the show notes. It's it's fantastic uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, so they're they're talking about um, the fact that we have created a very fragile society. That um, uh, the ways in which you know we're seeing people deal with stress uh, and um, traumatic or um, what they believe to be traumatic events is just, it, it's, it's far more sensitive than it's ever been, which is we're not creating resiliency. And so one of the things that he talks about as it relates to trauma um, is that that word has gotten thrown around a lot. Um, so uh, you called me a name on the playground. And so you have inflicted trauma on me as the result of that. Um, or, uh, you know, it, where it used to be very um, subjective, uh, now it's very objective. And mm -hmm. so, uh, and so do you see that uh, even that word, uh, as you're relating to children, and they're dealing with stress and anxiety, um, you talked about depression, uh, do you see that like that that word gets thrown around more regularly? Are you are you trying to hold to a tight line on how that's defined to not let kids in this sense get too far off the rails and how they're using that? Because I feel like that can be an excuse, right? Like, um, you know, what you did to me created this traumatic experience and now I just can never be the same again. And obviously, you know, to each its own, but, you know, holding a line, I think could be helpful. So do you see that happening a lot in that environment? I don't see that in schools, okay. to be honest. Um, I feel I, I feel like I know what you're talking about in terms I think of it more as like helicopter parenting and um, you know everyone gets a trophy and I definitely hear a lot of people talking about a lack of resilience in kids mm -hmm. um, not as it relates to trauma so much but um, just the inability to, to have grit and to work through things and persevere challenges that's definitely an issue I see yeah but I think with trauma um, so one's inability to cope 
the way that I define that is, um, you know, the amygdala is activated and cortisol and other hormones are released and the body goes into fight, flight, or freeze mode. Mm -hmm. And so it's not so much um, someone saying to themselves, I've experienced trauma. It's, it's a physiological reaction to yeah. a trauma. So, so historically that would have been like a traumatic event would have been something uh, in which either physical harm was inflicted upon you or you were in danger of having physical harm inflicted upon you uh, and therefore you were uh, trauma was caused uh, as a result to you um, uh, you know because of that event and then moving forward you've had a traumatic experience now that that has been assigned to a lot of mental emotional um, spiritual um, uh, issues. And so I do feel like there's a possibility that the farther we let it go, again, not that um, some child being berated on the playground, uh, you know, as the result of the way they look or act or are or whatever, like clearly we could say, yes, that is a traumatic event. So I don't want to diminish that. Um, but I do feel like um, we're walking this really, really scary line right now um, in which before long, you know, we could almost assign anything to trauma if we just let people make, you know, define it for themselves. Yeah, like my, my math homework was really, really hard for me and I struggled with it. And so it's traumatic for me to do math. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and if it's, and if it's to, you know, if it kind of, if it's to each its own, then how can somebody tell them they're wrong? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's kind of crazy, right? Um, okay, so uh, so back to something that you said earlier that I thought was really, really interesting. And I want people to hear this, whether you are leading in your home, uh, whether you're a teacher, whether, you, uh, whether you're leading in an organization. So you said something uh, in which uh, you were talking about helping identify these children's strengths and, and working from that place to help kind of elevate those things um, uh, to, but to hold a standard at the same time. And so I feel like you as the facilitator of these uh, trainings, as you're coaching people, as you're having these conversations, you have to have a significant level of social awareness and an understanding of people in order to navigate that well, um, mm -hmm. would because what I see happen a lot, and I'll take this to the to the adult world for a second. Like in the corporate environment, like this is where leaders I feel like fail so often is they're trying to um, create standards, and so they don't understand how to meet people where they're at, or they try and meet everybody where they're at, but they have like no BS meter, and so then they just let people get away with murder uh, because they believe to what they say to be true. So do you find that somebody in your role uh, has to be really, really good in that area to understand people to be able to do this well? Yes, I think um, requires emotional intelligence. And um, that's something, something, uh, one of my strengths, I would say. And so I do that intuitively, but I try to teach people how to do that in a systematic way. So one of the tools that I use is um, something created by Thomas Armstrong. He wrote a book called Neurodiversity. Mm 
And he created a strengths checklist. And it's this really cool, it's, it's actually six pages. Um, and I had have permission for him, from him to use that in my work. And so I give that out as a, as a resource. And um, that could be completed by the adult, by the student, or by both. And then a conversation can be had from there. So it's sort of a starting point in terms of looking at um, what are you good at? What do you like to do? What are your passions? Um, what do you see as your strengths? And so even if you don't pick up on it intuitively, you can sort of mechanically assess some of that. Okay, the other so, okay so, so hold that thought because I actually was looking at that. You posted something on LinkedIn the other day and you shared a page of that. And yeah. I, there's, a, there's some of them that I saw that's like, okay, so anybody with half a brain uh, could, um, could well assess whether somebody demonstrates common sense or whether somebody um, works independently or works good with other people, right? Like there's, there's things there that could be really easy, but how much time do you have to spend or do you, or, you know, would you prefer to spend a lot of time with the people that are going to be assessing using these tools to help them better understand what it means to, um, um, to have a good sense of responsibility uh, when when people are walking through issues or what self-discipline really means before they just assess whether somebody else has it. So do you spend a lot of time with people teaching them how to use those tools uh, before they go out and impose those things on other people? No, not so much because um, I spend more time helping them shift their mindset. Hmm. So. Um, in the social work world, we are trained from a, a strengths perspective. So from very early on in my career, I've always looked at people that way um, through that lens. But the rest of the world, um, and especially in, in schools, is very problem focused. Mm -hmm. So I have created so, some activities and um, uh, different discussion starters to help people recognize that, oh, look how much easier it is for me to notice the problems in this picture versus um, when I look at it, I see different strengths that, that um, pop out at me that other people might not even see. So, and then we talk about the physiology behind that, which is we, our brains are programmed to look for danger. And so you're up, you've got this negativity bias already that you're up against. So how do you, A, become aware of that and then B, shift your thinking to actively look for the positives. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So that makes a lot of sense. So you, you do a significant amount of work clearly uh, in the school system. Um, and I've seen the results again of some of, you know, the things that you shared and some of the things people say. And so it is just so fascinating and it's encouraging to see that uh, areas of the education system are willing to invest in these areas because, because it is so different than mm -hmm. how they're at least programmed right now. Yeah. Um, so that's great. So you are helping to raise a generation of people that are going to hopefully behave quite a bit differently in the adult world, uh, which we desperately need right now, right? Like we wish we could just snap a finger and our adults could um, have the similar capacity to do the things they do that you're teaching kids to do, but they don't. And yet that's not the only where place you spend your time. So you also spend your time in the corporate world. Um, so tell me, um, what are some of the similarities to what you do in the corporate world 
for what you do in the uh, children's, uh, you know, in the education system in schools? Um, so because I started working in schools, I um, am really familiar with that arena. And what I started noticing was, oh, yeah, these same types of issues are occurring. Well, first I had a couple of colleges and universities approach me and um, and I worked with them on being trauma informed. And um, so now we're talking about 18, 19, 20 year olds. And what I am realizing is that these kids grow up and, um, and now they're in the work world and still have a lot of the same issues. Mm -hmm. So how do I adapt this work to fit in the corporate environment? And the pieces that I have found to be really helpful are um, self-awareness is huge. People don't know what they're feeling. They don't know how to describe what they're feeling. They're just reacting to things. Mm -hmm. So getting people to, to really slow down, be mindful, um, practice self-care, um, be aware of what's happening in their bodies and then how that comes out in terms of their interactions. And then also, uh, and that is a piece of emotional intelligence, but uh, even more so, um, how do I understand myself and the way that I think of the world and then how do I adapt based on who I'm talking to mm. and um, understanding differences among people. So those have been some of the areas of focus. And what's the biggest difference in working with adults and children? Um, children are definitely easier to make change with. <laughs> Less, fewer years of bad habits, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, adults are more close-minded and well this is just the way I am um, there's a lot more resistance when you have a room full of adults who are kind of being required to be there in the room mm -hmm. um, and then you have a totally different feel if you know I do keynotes and motivational speaking as well and the audience would be filled with people who choose to be there and it's a whole different kind of vibe there mm -hmm. so it really depends yeah I mean I, I feel like one of the biggest problems um, that we have in the corporate world is there is so much pride involved in, uh, in people's, um, uh, willingness to grow, right? Like uh, when I'm sitting with a bunch of my peers and somebody is up there telling me that there's a possibility that there's some deficiency in me, like legitimate deficiency in me. It's so hard for me to raise my hand and admit that I am part of the problem. Not, you know, like of myself right now, generally we're willing to say like, yes, you know, I have some deficiency, I have some issues, but to really get down to like, I am not self-aware or, you know, I, I lie to myself all the time in the worst of ways <laughs> and I need help in this area. I just feel like that is such a huge, huge struggle. So how are you overcoming some of those barriers that adults put up far more often. I mean, kids, you get in a room with them, they get really excited. Uh, you're teaching them something new. They, they hear ways out of their struggles. So they're probably a little bit more apt to do something about it again, but adults, it's just like they, they put up this barrier. So how do you overcome that when you step into that environment? So I use my own emotional intelligence in that, <laughs> in that um, regard. So that would involve asking a lot of questions and really trying to understand where that person is coming from, um, what their hangups might be, um, what I kind of poke around and look and see, is there a small window that I can work with? 
And then I try to help them, um, you know, a lot of it is the language. So it's a supportive role. I'm here to help you, um, to empower you, to help um, answer some of your questions, not to change you or make you better or different, but um, just to support you and help you on your growth journey. So it's, I think the way that I say it, um, and then I also spend a good amount of time on the front end um, developing a relationship and connecting and being real myself and not trying to be this perfect person that comes in with all the answers. And, and for the companies that are hiring you uh, to do work in this area, what are some of the common reasons why they come to you in the first place? Like what are the things they're saying to you that, you know, that lead you to believe this could be a good fit for you? Um, so I work with, I've worked with a lot of sales teams and so, um, CEOs might be looking for um, ways to help their salespeople be more effective. Um, I also work with people who um, might be two people having conflict or conflict within a team. And so um, their manager or supervisor is uh, not getting what they need out of them. So helping them work through that. Um, and then I also do sort of um, like lunch and learns or whole company overviews because companies are very, they, they're talking a lot about, CEOs are talking a lot about the impact of depression and anxiety on their employees and how they notice they're just kind of like shuffling through and they're not that engaged. They may be using a lot of sick time. So companies are really interested in helping people, helping to educate people about mental health mm -hmm. and how to recognize issues. And recently I just created a presentation that was all about natural ways to boost your mood. So it's not like, oh, you might have depression. Um, you should go see a doctor. There's something wrong with you. But it's like, hey, it's it's we're heading into winter. There's less sunlight. We're all kind of struggling a bit with our moods. Here are 10 ways that you can kind of help with that. So just trying to really normalize it and help people just to be, you know, to lift them up a little bit. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I absolutely, um, I love that. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, so somebody, uh, uh, a larger influencer on Twitter the other day posted something you know, like, what, what is not being talked enough about in the entrepreneurial world? And, you know, one of the things I talked about was rest. Um, but, it's, it, but it's around this whole idea, like, yes, I think we're at a place now where people are at least aware of the fact that mental health is an issue. And it's, you know, it, it's finding its way into the workplace, clearly finding its way into relationships and other things. But I think that w organizations are still, and, and I understand, like, there, there's a lot to take on here, but I think that they are still at a really, really high level. And I don't think they have yet to understand what it's going to really take, um, you know, because it's great to get somebody to come in and speak about mental health. And clearly that's a great first, you know, first step. But I believe that until you get your employees to, to change their behavior, uh, to give them permission uh, to express again, workplace appropriate, the challenges that they're having, like we're just never gonna see these things, you know, take, take any kind of positive shape. I mean, when I coach people, 
Um, they come to me with a problem. They come to me with an opportunity. One of the first things that I do is go back to, okay, I want to know how, how you're taking care of yourself, right? Like, are you getting enough sleep every single day? What does that look like to you? Do you have some sort of exercise routine or regimen? Like, are you getting outside? Are you moving around? What are you putting into your body, right? Are you going out every night and just binge drinking your way into the next, you know, into the next day or, you know, are you, are you, because all of those things are going to contribute positively or negatively to our mental well-being, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, our CEOs and managers um, are str struggle with the same issues. So how it, I think it's hard to ask that of somebody who may not be taking care of themselves in yes. that way. So I agree with you. I think it's about creating a culture in the workplace where it's, first of all, it's, it's um, based on relationship and trust. And then second, it's okay to not be perfect and to um, to have a safe space where people can actually be real and say, you know, I'm struggling with this. Are there resources or anything like that? But we don't, if we don't talk about it, then everybody kind of stuffs it down and it comes out in other, other ways. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I, I really appreciate some of, again, the more prominent people that are out on social in the world that are speaking to these issues. I do feel like some of them are trying to uh, find a step on the podium to, you know, to pitch their next idea or to build their following on these things. But I do feel like there is, there is a group of people that genuinely is trying to be transparent about the things that they struggle with and the ways in which they're navigating that because that creates relatability, right? It's one thing to like look at somebody that says, yeah, I used to struggle with anxiety and depression and I'm healed and I'm all better and look at where I've taken my life. Like, that's great. Like we want success stories, but it's hard to relate to that when we're in the valley and all we want to do is attach ourselves to somebody that's still walking through those challenges and can help at least encourage us in ways to get out of it, right? Definitely, yeah. So being, being real, I mean, Part of what I do when I get up in front of a group is um, not necessarily disclosing all of my personal life, but um, but just I, I have certain things that I am willing to talk about that I feel are um, appropriate in that setting. And it would be, you know, this is something that I struggle with or this is something that is continually a challenge for me. And here are some of the ways that I um, deal with that. And here are some resources I can share with you. But yeah, it's very much about being a real person and not um, pretending that I have it all together. I used to actually do that um, as a trainer when I first started about 10 years ago. And um, one day, I don't know what happened, but I was up in front of a group and I spontaneously shared kind of a personal story. And I had like 10 people come up to me afterward and say, oh my gosh, that same thing happened to me. Or we just really connected and I felt so different after that. And then it occurred to me that people don't want or expect me to be up there as this person who has all the answers. They just want me to be a real person. Um, we all have struggles. So um, sharing, I think sharing some of that in my work is really important. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So <clears throat> where, where do you feel like is the next big leap in the work that you're doing or the work that needs to be done in general in this area to really help us take that next step towards being, 
mentally healthy uh, in terms of having a better, more positive mindset in regards to that type of stuff. So have, are you seeing where this needs to go? Yeah, I think it all kind of stems from um, mindfulness, to be honest. I've seen really dramatic changes in people um, based on what they've told me just by introducing them to what it means to meditate, which mm -hmm. everybody makes this big, you know, this big thing out of it, but really it's just being still and on your breath or whatever. Um, but when I take groups through an experience like that, and then we talk about it, um, and then at the end of the training, I'll ask them what was something, you know, your key takeaway. Um, a lot of people say, well, I'm going to start a meditation practice. Mm -hmm. And I feel like at least on my growth journey, that was the starting point, the sort of the turning point for me. Mm -hmm. um, and it leads to all different changes that come from that. But I feel like that's where people, that's where we need to focus right now. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that's exciting to hear that. I think because, you know, one, um, you're an expert in this area. I'm not. And yet I feel that way. Like that, that is such an important thing. I think there's a lot of woo woo around mindset right now that I wish would go away um, because I think it's clouding um, what could be really, really good. Um, I have found benefit. Uh, so I am terrible about like, I am uh, you know, I know where I'm, I'm strong and I'm extremely self-aware. I'm extremely socially aware. Like I, I, I'm pretty clear on this stuff. Um, and yet one of the things that I struggle the most with is the ability to just take a step back, to slow down and just to be present with myself. Right. I, I would always say like the thought of being stuck in a room all by myself for a couple of hours with nobody and nothing literally just would like it, it freaks me out. And yeah. so what I did was a couple of things. Um, I had a client introduced me to a company by the name of Muse uh, that does these really cool um, headbands that um, are coupled with an app on your phone that help you to meditate. And it's something I've never done. And literally, it's just like, okay, let's start at five minutes, you know, and let's see if we can do it. And I've actually done a really poor job of being consistent. But when I do it, it's been really helpful. So that was one thing I did. Another thing that I actually just finished yesterday was... Uh, Ryan Holiday writes a book called Stillness is the Key, and it's fascinating the stories that he shares of people all throughout his history, from Marcus Aurelius uh, to William Churchill, uh, John F. Kennedy, and all of the different ways that they practice stillness of the mind and how it looks so different. And I think that was the other thing that was really cool was like, I don't have to be the guy that's sitting with my legs crossed on the rock in the desert meditating. Yeah. Like it may be different. Right. And so I think like it was Churchill that he said, um, maybe it was him or Kierkegaard. Anyways, one of them was like, they just went for a walk in the garden. And like that to them was this moment to like still their mind, to get kind of centered as to where they were in the day and the, in the project that they were in. And so I love that idea. And I wish more people would talk about practically what that looks like and help lead people in that direction. I just think it's such a big opportunity to do that. Definitely. Going for a long run can be a meditation. Yes. You know, um, things that you going for a hike in the woods, the things that you might do anyway. Um, it's all about just being present, mm -hmm. you know, um, in that moment. Um, you maybe think of something which is basically um, when, so you said if I had to be alone with myself in a room, it would make me crazy. <laughs> so what exactly are you running from? And it's that, and I've been there, 
it's that drive. It's like your brain is always thinking about what's next mm-hmm. instead of and what happens, at least for me, what happened was I got divorced and was forced into a situation where I was in my house by myself without my kids, without anybody. And it was horrible at first, dreadful. Um, but I had to work through that. And what I found was in that stillness, I was able to um, connect with myself. And so instead of thinking about what I needed to do next, I received inspiration. And it would be... Um, I was more connected to my true self as opposed to who I thought I should be. Mm. And that's when my life started changing was when I started just being still and really being open to ideas as opposed to forcing myself to think things. So that's why I think that mindfulness is so key because if we could all be more true to ourselves and do what we love and be connected to our path versus what we think we should be doing. Mm -hmm. We'd all be a lot happier. And I think a lot of things would change from there. Yeah. Well, and again, you know, like you said, you know, I think that, um, you know, it's something that we all need to do, right. We all need to practice mindfulness. We all need to, to be more still. And at the same time, I think that we do need to be advocates for, allowing people to practice that in domains that they are comfortable with that with without getting it to the point of like you know my idea of being still is living in the midst of chaos and i can somehow be still there like no 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 there there are some you know common sense practices here but i think that's a message that that you know will will continue to or as we reinforce that message i think that will benefit a lot of people is helping them to see like this is an area that is extremely important Um, so let's find a way for you that this works out best and let's help you, uh, to live in that and to practice that because in the end, you're going to see the benefits that are, are there as a result, right? Absolutely. It's just like I was talking about scaffolding with kids and meeting them where they're at. Um, you know, if you're somebody who's never sits still and it would be painful for you to start by, you know, crossing your legs and uh, meditating with candles and incense, we're not going to want to start there. But if you're an avid runner, I might talk to you about how you could focus on counting your steps or focus on your breath and while you're running. And that's something that you might connect with more so. Yeah. You know, it's funny to me. So um, I am a pastor of a church uh, and then obviously also a parent. And so in both of those domains, I see uh, the struggle that kids have to sit still. Uh, so like uh, for church on Sundays, we have all of the kids in the first hour of service with us. It's a time to family worship. And so some of the struggle that parents have in the beginning is, well, my kid can't, get, can't sit still. So our first response is always, we understand, you know, that's fine. Their kids are going to be kids. But the other side of that is, and this is the same as a parent just in general, is your kid can sit in front of the TV for hours on end and never move a stinking muscle. But as soon as they need to be still in the classroom or in church, like whatever, all of a sudden, like their brain just goes crazy. And I believe that is in large part because of how we have brought them up and how probably we practice that ourselves, right? We have demonstrated to them that we can be still, that we can be mindful but we need to choose to do that. And we need to understand the environments in which we should be doing that uh, versus just the ones that we feel like are a good idea or are entertaining. And so we're willing to sit there and listen. Right. Like the dinner table, for example. Yeah. Oh, gosh. 
right? Um, being mindful of what you're doing, what, what you're eating, what, um, being grateful for where this food came from, connecting with that. Um, there are so many ways that parents can demonstrate that by not having your phone out 24 seven and uh, checking emails, which, you know, I'll be honest, I have to catch myself with that sometimes. Yeah. My work, my life is in my phone, um, but I'm aware of it. And every so often I'm like, all right, I need to just turn this off and put it somewhere and just disconnect. Um, but I could see how, you know, that can just take over if you're not paying attention. So yeah, I, I, I saw the craziest thing. So this is kind of like a tangent here, but I think it's really important about just like being present. Uh, so I took my youngest daughter, she's 10. Um, she wanted Chick-fil-A one night. So we went and grabbed her Chick-fil-A. We went over to Chipotle so I could get food. So we're sitting in Chipotle eating and this older dad uh, and young son, probably about the same age as my daughter, uh, they sit down and the kid pops up the phone in front of his face. It's literally like three inches from his face. He's got a video going uh, at, and he's watching that as he's eating his food. And uh, all the while, the dad is sitting across from him at the table, the little tail of Chipotle, watching him, just staring into his eyes as he was sitting watching the, 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 pro, the thing on TV or on, on his phone. And I was like, what in the hell? Like. It, this is bananas to me to think that like you feel that there is any bit of productivity or relationship or community in a moment in which you are staring at a child, staring exactly. at a screen like that. That's just mind blowing to me, but you're right. Us as parents, we do it all the time too. And we have to be mindful of that because if not, our kids are going to do the exact same thing. And that parent allowed that situation. Oh God, it's so bad that okay? Um, I had a moment similar. I, I actually give a talk about this because it struck me um, so dramatically. I was, at the, I was at a park with my daughter this summer and it was just a beautiful day and we said, let's just, we like to sit by the pond and watch the animals and whatnot. So we're sitting on the bench and I'm watching, it's this big, huge, maybe half mile loop around a pond and I'm watching this gorgeous day, bright blue sky, and I'm watching literally everybody walking past me, looking at their phones, scrolling, walking in groups of people. Like you might see three or four friends together. They all have their phones out and they're not even like, they don't know where they are. They're not talking to each other. They're so disconnected. And it was shocking. And it wasn't just a few. It was everybody. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. Crazy. No, it's. It's, it's, it's really dangerous. And, and again, this, like, this goes all the way back to the beginning of what we talked about, you know, even at the level of the children that we're raising. Um, but clearly through the corporate world, us as just human beings in general, like there is such a necessity for us to be present uh, for mm -hmm. ourselves, for the people around us, you know, for the benefit of us and for the benefit of them too. Like it is something that we need to recapture. And I, I think that, you know, people just blame that on social media. They blame that on the phone. Yes, it, it's def it makes it a lot harder and there are many things working against us. But we have a choice to make. And I think that we can proactively make a choice just to be a little bit better every single day because eventually we can help to heal some of the biggest struggles society sees right now as it relates to relational conflict, as it relates to mindfulness, as it relates to mental health. Like yeah. it, it, we can be the change. We just have to make, you know, make the decision to do so. And lead by example. Yep, absolutely. 
Well, I love this conversation. I mean, again, you know, from a distance, as I meet people online, I just get to be an, an outside observer. I'm clearly no expert in this area, but I love to see the work that you're doing. And I love that it happens both in the context of the uh, education system with youth, as well as in the corporate world with adults, because it really is so much the same problem, obviously in different contexts. So it's been super cool to see that happen. And I really appreciate you being willing to come on and share a lot of that, because I think this is a conversation that more and more of us need to be having with ourselves and with the people around us. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It was fun. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, okay, so wrapping up, uh, what are the best ways for people to connect with you, to reach out if they want more information? Um, yeah. So um, they can connect with me on my website, which is um, jenniferbashant, B-A-S-H-A-N-T.com. And my email is on there. Um, I have a book coming out in the next couple months, which is going to, it's all about um, trauma compassionate classrooms. Mm. So it's educators. Um, so people can look for that. That'll be on my website as well. Um, and then I have, um, my speaking engagements and events, uh, posted there. So if someone is interested in coming to hear me talk, they'll be able to find that info on my website. Super fun. Okay. So maybe I have to have you come back on after you get that book launched and talk (laughs) all about the book. That'd be fun. All right. So thank you again so much. I just, I really appreciate it. We'll make sure to put all that contact information in the show notes. So thank you, Jennifer. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. All right, guys. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Excellence Mindset Podcast. As always, just appreciate the time that you spend listening to these episodes. Appreciate your feedback. Anything that you have to say, please send it my way. I'd love to hear about this episode. Maybe a recommendation you have for something in the future. In the meantime, this is a wonderful episode for you to go back and listen to again, just to remember as often as I say this, I really, really do mean it. If you want more out of the life you live, then you have to be more of yourself. Practicing mindfulness, getting the right mindset there is definitely going to be a contributor. Thanks so much. Take care and talk to you soon. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Excellence Mindset with Ryan James Miller. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe. And for more great content and to stay up to date, visit ryanjamesmiller.com. We'll catch you next time.